Hello and welcome back to Freedom Machines with Freddie Dobbs. It's Monday afternoon here. It will be my last podcast episode from Ipswich in the UK before we head off back to Tenerife. It's been really beautiful weather. I mean, we've had blue sky here for about the past four days or so. I mean, of course, it hasn't been warm, but this is the UK. You can't ask for everything. But we've had blue sky and that is more than I expected. So it's been beautiful. Rewind a couple of days or four or five days. Thursday morning, Monica and I packed up the car and we drove west to southeast London where we parked my car near my old apartment that, that I'm renting out. That's the place we both lived for probably about six or seven years. Parked the car up there and then got the train into central London to the Knightsbridge Mayfair area, which is just one of the most high-end areas of London where Ford Fiestas are replaced with Rolls Royces, that type of place. And we went there for Michelin, well, actually the GQ Car of the Year Awards sponsored by Michelin. And it was just, it was just superb. We were invited by Michelin, stayed in the Barclay Hotel, which is one of the fanciest five-star hotels I've ever been lucky enough to stay in. They gave us a deluxe suite, views of London out of the windows, everything beautiful, a heated toilet seat. The toilet seat was heated. I don't need to say any more than that. That gives you the best possible idea of the kind of level that we were staying at. It really was a superb place. And the actual event, the GQ Car of the Year event was downstairs. So we got to go into London, enjoy this beautiful hotel room, and then just casually walk downstairs for the event. It was, well, it was unlike anything I've ever experienced, that level of luxury and just relaxed, stress-free, you know, ability to go and enjoy an event like that. Usually, you know, you're having to get through traffic, you're making sure you're on time for the event, but here, you just wander downstairs after having a couple of glasses of wine in your lovely hotel room. It's incredible. Went downstairs, 6.45 p.m. to the event, and it was full of a mix of, I guess, motoring journalists and online personalities, and it's the first ever event, GQ Car of the Year, where every single vehicle was electric, whether it's the supercar of the year, the family uh, family saloon car of the year, the hatchback, etc, etc, all electric, including one motorcycle, which was the Arc Vector. I may get onto that in a bit. Um, it's really, really mean looking electric motorcycle. Um, and there were two people there that I recognised. One was Max Chilton, who actually presented an award, gave an award, and he is the ex-Formula One racer. And the other one, probably the star of the whole show there, who really did generate some interest, was Matej Rimac, the founder of Rimac Supercars, electric supercars. And I remember I was standing having a glass of champagne with Monica just on the side of the event when people were going up to get their awards, and... This man was standing next to me waiting to go up and get, get his award and I thought nothing of it. And then they announced the supercar of the year as the Rimac and they say, and Mate Rimac, and up he goes. I had no idea that I was standing for about two minutes next to Mate Rimac. So that was a great experience to see that. 
And then we stayed in the hotel room for the night, woke up the next day, and we had a wander around Mayfair, you know, where, I can't remember if I said that or not, but basically Ford Fiestas are replaced with Rolls Royces, Lamborghinis, Mercedes G-Wagons. They are the normal cars in Mayfair. And we had a walk around and it's just so gloriously old school and so high-end, it's such a great experience just to go to these places, you know, where probably an average apartment is about, I dread to think, three million or so. But we're walking down these side streets, and if you're ever in London, I highly recommend it. Um, get to Mayfair, don't use any public transport, and just walk around, because we were just going along a street. Every building's immaculate, and you go past, I've never seen it before, a male barber's and perfumer, and it's where you can get your hair cut and also buy your perfume. It's brilliant. And then walking along down another side street, and there was one of the finest secondhand bookshops I've seen. Walking down the street, and just in the window of the street were six first edition James Bonds there for sale. When I have, I, I'm, I would class myself almost as homeless, but when I have a property, I mean, I'm not claiming some kind of hardship here. I just mean homeless because rented out places in the UK and then in a month and a half we don't know where we'll be after Tenerife. So don't worry about me. I'm okay. I only mean because we don't have a proper base. Let me change that. I don't have a proper base, but when I do have a proper base, oh, it'd be a dream, a dream to have a selection of James Bond first editions. For me, there is nothing else cooler than that. That is a very, very special thing to have. And they've got the most brilliant artwork on them, these original ones, you know, like a skeleton's hand holding a dagger or something like that. Oh, oh, to have one of those. Okay, right, I, I need to move on, but that was great. GQ Car of the Year, and it was great to be back in London looking at its absolute best in the sun. And I want to go back a bit now, just a couple of days before GQ Car of the Year. It's very interesting because when I went to the launch of the Triumph and Breitling limited edition motorcycle and the new Breitling watch, the conversation that's generated with these limited edition motorcycles is fascinating. It brings out a lot of hatred from uh, quite a lot of people, but these motorcycles, limited editions, I think, to the best of my knowledge, sold out in a couple of hours, all gone. So despite a very big chunk or a very sizable chunk of people really not liking these limited editions because they say they're too expensive, God, they still sell out. That doesn't seem to matter. It just shows, you know, when you're looking at this type of stuff, whether we're talking luxury motorbikes or Ferraris or Rolexes or Breitlings or Armani suits or Gucci boots, you know, there's something for everyone. I, yes, it's, I can't afford that Breitling special edition Triumph motorbike, but we need stuff like that in the world. I really do believe it because if we start you know, saying too much that, oh, you know, that's too much, that's too much, you're going to get rid of it. You know, I can't afford a Ferrari, but I want Ferraris to be around. Like, we need that excess in the world. I really do think that we need that excess in the world. It's not for everyone, 
but we need it because we need people pushing the boundaries, not only what's possible with regards performance, but also these special editions. You know, there's something for everyone. These special editions I know are not for everyone, but it's a, it's a special thing. And if you can afford it, if you've got that disposable income where you've got enough money for it, what a lovely thing to get. A beautiful Triumph with a matching Breitling. You're, you're looking at about £21,000 for the watch and the bike together. And I know that's out of most people's price range, but what a great thing to have if you've got the money. If I had the money, I'd probably buy it. I'm, I'm not going to lie. Uh, if, if I owned that bike, the £16,500 limited edition Breitling Triumph Speed Twin, I was thinking to myself when I was coming back from that event, would I ride it or would I keep it as more of a collector's piece? And honestly, I'm almost disappointed at myself for this. I think if I bought a special edition bike, and this may even extend to a very valuable classic motorcycle, I don't know if I'd ride it. I think I may even keep it as more of a collector's piece. I don't know if I'm disappointed in myself for saying that or not. You know, uh, it's 16,500 for such a special edition bike. And, you know, if you get the matching watch, I, I don't know. I, I feel the majority of these will be locked up and kept as a bit of history. And is that a bad thing or not? Well, that will divide opinion again. For me personally, I, I probably don't see it as too bad a thing. I'm just glad that they exist in the first place. And these things do often pop up. And I wanted to have a look at this. The one big Triumph limited edition motorcycle that I do remember came out, I think, in about 2013 was the Triumph Scrambler Steve McQueen limited edition. And the only reason I mention this is because it's one I very vividly remember coming out because it came out about a year after I passed my motorcycle test. And I remember really wanting one. And I remember they cost, I think, and this is purely from my memory, so apology for, apologies if I'm not right, but I remember them being around about £10,000 when new. I think if I'm right, they're around about £2,000 over the standard price, something like that. And I thought, let's have a look. Let's see how the residual values of these special edition triumphs hold up with, in relation to the standard ones. So... I've got here, okay, I'll tell you what, I'm gonna do this as we speak. Triumph Steve McQueen limited edition bikes. And there's only, and I'm just checking all the sites here, Auto Trader, Auto Trader, there's one. And let me just see if there are any on eBay. There are, I can't see any others online. I'll just check eBay in case I've missed any. Triumph Scrambler Steve McQueen. In fact, there aren't going to be many in the UK available. I think there was something like four or five hundred made. There aren't any on, this is quite interesting, there are none available on eBay, but there is one and only one available on Autotrader. Right, Triumph Bonneville, genuine, genuine Steve McQueen, 2012 model, so they came out around 2012, exactly as I'd expect. Immaculate condition, 
2,100 miles done in 10 years. So you're looking at about 200 miles a year. It is in, I would say, as new condition. Guess the price, it's 10,000 pounds. I've been looking at these bikes at least twice a year, every year for the past probably eight to 10 years. So there's always something about these bikes I like and they have stuck completely rock solid at the 10,000 pound mark. They haven't dropped a penny in effect since new. Listen to this, stunning. To own a very low mileage example of this very special and collectible Bonneville produced in conjunction with the, uh, with the founder, Steve McQueen, based on one of his favorite bikes, the T100, number 451 of 1,100. Okay, so there are 1,100 produced worldwide and only 130 imported by Triumph into the UK. So only 130 here. Looks amazing, matte green, uh, with Steve McQueen's signature on each panel. Of course, his, a copy of his signature on each panel. Um, but there we have it, that is £10,000 and the cost of a similar Triumph Bonneville Scrambler from around 2012, you're looking at about five to five and a half thousand pounds plus. So this has held its value much better. However, this also has almost no mileage on the clock and it is immaculate. So let's say it's still holding on to about three, three to four thousand pounds of its value compared to a relative standard Triumph Scrambler of the same era. So they do hold their value or at least the Steve McQueen ones do hold their value. So I think Breitling Triumph limited edition, I think that's going to be a good solid investment. Maybe it won't explode for the next few years, but it will be a good solid investment 100%. But someone actually sent in an interesting email to me. And this is something that I've often been guilty with in the past. It's all about not just the kind of bike or vehicle that you can afford to, to buy outright, but it's also, can you afford the maintenance costs? Can you afford the running? How much, how much thought do you put into the ownership costs of a vehicle? And before I read this email, let me take you back to, um, there have been so many times in my life where I've made the wrong financial decision, but the worst one I ever made, I, I'm like a child with money. I, I managed to save up 10,000 uh, pounds when I had my recruitment company. And for me, that was a gigantic amount of money, 10,000. We'd had a couple of good deals and I thought, right, this is it. It's time for me to buy my dream car. It was, this was about four years ago and the car in question was, in fact, it was five years ago. I remember I was 30 years old, five or six years ago. I had 10,000 pounds cash ready and the, the car in question was a, 90, a 2005 Jaguar XK, 4.2 litre coupe V8 engine, uh, cream leather, silver bodywork, 18 inch alloys, for me still one of the most beautiful cars ever made. And I'd worked so hard to save up that money and I'd wanted this car for so long and I thought, that's it, you've done it, Fred, you're off. And I was living in Tenerife at the time and I found a nice XK. Well, I say nice XK, the truth is it was the cheapest XK in the UK, um, but it still looked good. And I could only just afford the cheapest one. 
So I flew back from Tenerife and I went to meet a guy who was selling it in Birmingham. Flew into London and then I got a train up to Birmingham. This is how desperate I was. I then picked it up, very quick test drive, paid the money, drove it back down to London, parked it in my flat in London and then flew back out to Tenerife the very next day. That's how desperate I was to get this car. And then I then spent my last month in Tenerife before relocating back for the summer in the UK where I could enjoy the XK. Anyway, I'm di digressing. Car was 10K. I then had no money left in the bank because I had absolutely maxed out every penny. I had a few members of staff uh, in my recruitment company. Uh, but the problem is I'd forecast the, the money coming in from the recruitment company to carry on at a consistent pace. But absolutely typical, the second I go and spend a big chunk of the company money on the car, the deals start drying up with, uh, with the business. And suddenly after two, two to three weeks of having the XK, I'm driving along with Monica and one of our friends in London and the engine blows up and I have to pull over. And I get the AA, which is the recovery team, to take the car to a mechanic. And it needed a thousand pounds worth of work doing on it. And I had to take that money out of the business that was fixed. I was stressed out. And then uh, driving around and a month later after that, in fact, a month and a half after that, there was another bill needed for £1,300. So in total, it was about £2,000 of repairs in the first three months. And I was absolutely on my knees with the maintenance costs. It had crippled me so much so that I actually had to stop driving the car four or five months after buying it and I had to leave it in my parking space for six months because I never quite recovered with the recruitment company and it was just left there in my parking space for six months until eventually I thought that's it I'm not going to get out of this financial position I'm going to have to sell the car and I ended up selling it for three thousand pound loss on t and of course I had to pay 2,000 for maintenance. So in a year, I lost 5,000 pounds on the car and I only got to enjoy it for half the time. And the truth is that even when driving it around the place, I could never fully enjoy it because I knew I'd overstretched myself. I never quite had that comfortable cushion of money to be able to enjoy it. I overstretched too much and every mile that I did, I knew that, oh, God, what if, what if I need a new tyre for it? That's £250 a tyre compared to £40, you know, for my old car. So just a tyre is a big expense. Um, if it needs uh, a new battery, you know, it's £160 compared to £45. Brakes, you know, everything is five times the price. I didn't factor in the cost of actually owning that vehicle in comparison to a simple little hatchback that I can happily whiz around on, max it out, you know, red line, it doesn't matter because everything's so cheap. It's a very, very different proposition when you have these high-end vehicles. Anyway, that's my story. Let me get you onto this. Freddie, um, and I'm quoting here. Freddie, an idea for a future podcast. Um, in fact, I may get onto this later, but I'll read the whole thing. An idea for a future podcast, Freddie. I have a Ducati Supersport S. It's my second bike. 
after a Suzuki SV650S and it's been perfectly reliable, including a number of track days. The only downside to this Ducati ownership is the servicing. Unfortunately, you have to take it back to Ducati or you cannot reset the service light to yourself. This means having to pay £300 for a service compared to £150 with a local trusted mechanic. I find this a real turn-off for Ducati ownership, which I otherwise love, and the next time would be looking for something that could be fully serviced, including electronics, resetting the light, etc., by a local independent mechanic. I wonder if other people consider this when looking for their next bike. And that's exactly what I, it leads on to the story uh, I, I just told you about. It's very, very important, um, probably more so if you do have a, a specific budget, you know, there will be plenty of people who don't have any financial constraints. Um, and it, it does make life easier and less stressful. But if you're, you're looking at a bike uh, and you are making sure that you focus on a budget, it's really important to look at those maintenance costs. You know, I remember speaking to someone, and you can let me know if I'm wrong, but he said uh, he's got a Triumph Rocket, and he said to buy the rear tyre is £250 for a rear tyre, and they eat the rear tyres. £250 compared to, I think, mine are 110 for the Bonneville. You know, you've got to factor all of this into account. Another interesting one are the Royal Enfields. I think they've got very short servicing uh, lives, especially the, uh, the Himalayans. I think it's every 3,000 miles. So in reality, you're probably going to have to service the Himalayans yourself, which I think is very easy. Otherwise, you may start building up those garage builds. So it's important to look at that, not just get the motorbike that you, you know, the absolute best motorbike you can possibly afford, but also making sure that you don't overstretch yourself and ruin the enjoyment of that motorcycle experience. Sometimes it can be better if you're happy to take that hit, you know, get an Interceptor instead of a Bonneville, for example. Um, get the, the Suzuki Tora, I, I forget the name, get the Suzuki Tora motorcycle instead of the, the BMW GS, or get a second-hand BMW R9T for £8,000 instead of getting the brand new one for 12 and a half. Just give yourself that extra cushion. Sometimes it can actually enhance your enjoyment of, of motoring in general. I've definitely found that. I have so many times in my life overstretched myself. I think I'm doing well in life and I go out and I, I max out on a car or a motorbike and it just kills me. I'll be completely honest, the last time I did that, I've got to tell you this story because, you know, I, I love it looking back, just the amount of silly, silly things I've done. I, I had, this was right at the end of, uh, of having my recruitment company. And I had, uh, I thought, you know, I had to sell everything basically. I sold my Triumph Speed Triple and I sold my Jaguar to free up some funds for the business. And I then bought a Suzuki Bandit and I bought that Suzuki Bandit because after having no bike for three weeks, I realized this is crazy. I can't live without a bike. So I ended up buying a Suzuki Bandit for £800. And I had that for about 15 months. And, and then after having that band, I thought, 
I can't, I, I have to buy a bike now. I'm really, really, you know, a bike that I really want. And that was the Triumph Bonneville. I had my heart set on it so much. I applied for a loan on Ratesetter, which is this uh, online loan company. And I, I think I took the loan out for five years and it was 80 pounds a month for five years. And at this time I said Ocado being a, a delivery driver, grocery delivery drivers, uh, driver. And, and I, I took the loan out because I was just at the end of doing recruitment and still making a little bit of money from recruitment, but the company was dying out. And I thought, yes, I can just afford it. But then the recruitment company completely stopped and um, I, I didn't realize that the money would 100%, 100% stop from the recruitment company, but it did. So that left me having to officially close the recruitment company down. And I was left with being comfortable-ish in my grocery delivery job uh, and having the Bonneville and paying the 80 pounds a month with the Bonneville. And I went from that to having only, only the grocery salary uh, coming in, having to, of course, pay the mortgage and the bills and things like that, and having the £80 a month uh, finance cost on the Bonneville. And it's that's tough when you're doing delivery jobs, having that finance of a motorbike. And I remember thinking, my God, I've, I've done it again. I have overstretched myself again. I keep getting myself into these situations where, you know, you just, I don't know why I do it. I don't know why I do it. Every time I think something's going well, I then get into a situation where it stops going well and it's nearly always my own doing. Uh, so yeah, you just basically got to always factor in, not, not overstretching yourself because uh, I've, I've, lost, I've lost a lot of money and lost a lot of time in trying to get out of these situations. But now with the Bonneville, I'm happy to say Everything's nice and stable, and it is actually one of the most reliable bikes that I've had. Right, okay, I'll, I'll move on, because I'm just blabbering, blabbering today. Absolutely blabbering. Let me move on. Um, I can't remember if I said it in the last episode, but I walked past Maving, which is an electric motorcycle uh, company. Um, they've got their London showroom electric bikes. I'm sure I said it last time, but I just wanted to have a look at this because it's really interesting. It's a game changer because they make electric motorcycles and you can pull out the battery, charge it at home just in a normal plug socket. You don't need to actually plug in the bike. It's a game changer. They're under 5K and this is quite interesting. They do a single battery and a dual battery. So you can actually have a dual battery in it, which increases the range, I think, if I'm right, from about 40 miles to 80 miles. That puts it very, very close to the Harley-Davidson Livewire, which has a range of, I think it's about 100, 110 miles or so. I was getting about 100 miles when I used it. Basically meaning that this Maving electric motorcycle, city bike, looks great, retro looks, has a, mile, has a range of only 20 to 30 less than the, uh, the Livewire, but it's about 24,000 pounds cheaper. Let's say the live wire is 25 to 30K. This Maving is about five to five and a half, five to six K. Oh, prices are coming down all the time for these electric bikes. Let me just see, moving on, or just carrying on from my, my Suzuki Bandit. That just gave me an idea. I've just got a, a minute or so that I want to keep you for because 
if I go to Suzuki and see what I can find on the bandits for used prices, because these bikes have been sitting probably at about 800 pounds for the past seven years or so. But I want to see in the past year or so, what's happened with everything with the microchips and you know, maybe it could be a future classic, the air-cooled Suzuki Bandits. How have the prices been looking if we're going for a 600cc Suzuki Bandit? Bearing in mind that three years ago, I bought one for 820 pounds and that was the cheapest one on the market I could possibly find anywhere. What are we looking at right now? Suzuki Bandits on Auto Trader, and I'll leave you, and I've just clicked this myself, I'm leaving you with a bombshell. The cheapest Suzuki Bandit on Auto Trader, 600cc air-cooled, why the hell did I sell it? 1,500 pounds for the cheapest. I've done it again. I've done it again. I've sold it at the wrong time. I said this. I knew it. I said in a previous podcast episode, this will be a future classic, the 1200 Bandit and the 600 Bandit. And guess what? The prices are going up 1500 pounds minimum now. 1500 for these air-cooled 80 horsepower bandits. I've made a huge mistake again selling that. I'll leave you there. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. Have a brilliant week all and I'll speak to you in the next one.